You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hello, I'm Lee. And I'm Simon. And before we go any further, let's talk about this charity thing we've been discussing. Yeah, okay. We are, well, I had this idea a few weeks ago, but I wasn't really sure what to do. And now we've figured it out. So, yay. It's not going to happen till the new year. What I'm going to do is, well, the original plan was to record a podcast, stick it in a Dropbox, and ask people to make a charity donation before listening to it. So... It's not going to be a regular Blue Box podcast. Mm. This would be a test for what we're worth, wouldn't it? Uh, it's, this <laughs> just, yeah. Are you going to release who gets bigger donations, so to speak? Well, out of the four of us. Yeah. Well, it was originally just going to be one podcast with all four of us on it. Okay. Doing a regular Blue Box podcast that I was going to think, like leave in a Dropbox for a year and then upload to our feed. So that it'd be a regular episode of the Blue Box podcast, but you, you, the listeners would be able to download it early and get a preview of it if they made a donation to a charity. The only way you can do the donation to a charity thing, really, seriously, is just to ask people to do it. So it's on their mm-hmm. heads whether they do or not. Mm-hmm. So it's not obligatory, but obviously, you know, we'd like people if they would. But then I had an, another idea about how we could do it, how we could do it and make it something different. So it's not going to be a regular Blue Box podcast after all. What it will be instead is a series of four podcasts, one for each member of the team, and it's going to be called Desert Planet Picks. That's one lesser away from it being so wrong, isn't it? Instead of, instead of us choosing six records and a book and a luxury item what we'll have is each of the four of us will have eight different categories of things that we can take to a desert planet with us if we are to be stranded on a desert planet Tatooine is that what you're going to take like a tattooing oh my god you're tumbleweeding (laughs) me for that when you said oh a desert planet Tatooine (laughs) Wasn't a joke. Speaking of which, you know, know. last week in the the first half of the Zion episode, what what? there was a bit of tumbleweed. No, I'm not going to say there's a bit of tumbleweed. (laughs) Yes, there was a bit of tumbleweed, but the point I was going to make is that was foreshadowing for what happens to people when they've been zapped by the Zion thing. Yeah, of course. So actually, that tumbleweed was more than just tumbleweed. It was Mm. a little bit of foreshadowing. Oh, can I just say as well, Desert Planet, so last trilogy. Which Tatooine. Tatooine. It's a new desert planet. I can't remember the name of it now. Ooh. Oh, my God. What? Sorry. Are we... We were talking Star Wars. Then, so are we nerding we on Star Wars? Of course I am. <laughs> oh, yeah, but it's such a sad kind of nerding. <laughs> it is. <laughs> what, Apocalypse Now TIE Fighters? My did God. Tatooine not feature in the prequel th- trilogy? It did, yeah. That's what so, I'm saying, last trilogy. And the trilogy before. Yeah. But this time it's a different desert planet. I don't know why. Do you not think that Tatooine will feature at some point over the course of the next three films or however many? Hopefully they destroy it's it. Give it. it a bit. Well, we resist wrong. having some Tusken Raiders in there. Well, Luke Skywalker's still in it, right? 
Yeah. And he still considers tattooing his home planet, right? Ow. Even though he's now discovered he was Darth Vader's son and all this kind of stuff. <gasps> Spoilers. And he was... <laughs> <laughs> Back to the subject of the yes. charity casts. So, Desert Island Picks, there'll be four of us, four of them, one for each of the members of the Blue Box podcast. This is not going to happen until next January. Oh, right. Okay. But the reason I'm bringing it up now is because this was... Was it your suggestion, Lee? What, this one? No, oh, no this the category. There are going to, instead of being six records, a luxury item and a book, we're going to have eight different categories. Probably. Things that you can take to a desert planet. We will have a song. All right. A book, a film, a food item, a companion, which can mean any kind of company, somebody to take along for company. Right. Do they have to be real or can it be made of plastic? Or? <laughs> it is down to the individual's <laughs> discretion. There will be a classic series Doctor Who story that you can take with you and a new series Doctor Who story that you can take with you. And if you've been counting, that's seven categories. We need eight. And I think it was Lee who suggested that we should leave the eighth category up to the listener's discretion. So we would like you to either email in or find our Facebook page and message in there or whatever with a suggestion for what the eighth category should be. And either the most popular, the most ridiculous or the most sensible one will be the eighth category when we do the podcasts. So, oh, I don't give this out very Least often, Least favourite podcast. <laughs> Least favourite podcast. How would you know out of all the millions of podcasts out there? <laughs> most disliked podcast. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Okay, we're not mm. having most disliked podcast. No, no, no. we're not going to. Somebody else's podcast. <clears throat> but our email address, which I never give out, which is terribly remiss, really, but there you go. Blueboxpodcast at yahoo.co.uk. Oh, right, that's what it is. So you can email in there with your listener's choice for an eighth category for our Desert Planet Picks podcast. And some point in the new year, when we can find time to start doing these, they'll start appearing. <clears throat> Should we do the emails then before we talk about Go the episode, mm. considering we're on that kind of stuff? Dear and the boys and JR, no apology necessary. All the best, Al No. So I asked him what the hell he was talking about. Mm. He's a big HP Lovecraft fan. Oh. Last podcast we were talking about Lovecraft, oh. or podcast before, mm. and we were getting things all sorts of wrong. And we said, and you said, Simon, oh, we'll have to apologise to the Lovecraft fans. And there's Al telling us, not necessary. What did we say that was so wrong? I said we should apologise to the Lovecraft fans. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> why? What do we do on? Because he's talking about Cthulhu stuff and getting it badly, distractingly wrong. Well, that's okay. Probably. Yeah. All right. You've only written a story in an anthology to do <laughs> to do with Cthulhu. Yeah. That's just been released called Secret Invasion. Oh, that's it. That's what we were talking about. <laughs> Jay, I was wondering why he wasn't asked to be in it. Good point. Don't know. We weren't the editor. No, no, no. We were cherry picked. <clears throat> well, we've not said who the editor was. Tony Eccles. Yeah, Tony Eccles. So we'll um, no doubt have you on the next one if you want to put your hand up. Well, I don't know anything about Lovecraft, so yeah, Lord of Simon. <laughs> <laughs> but do you know what, Simon? Call of Cthulhu. But do you know what, Simon? <laughs> yeah. No apology necessary. Ah, oh, yeah. This is it. 
Do you want to tell me where people can get this book then? Uh, you can go to Just Giving and tap in Secret Evasion. Um, it's also available on Blurb now, isn't it? As a hard copy. I was just about to say, it's just been released as a hard copy. So you can get a pocket version, which that's going to be interesting, mm-hmm. um, and a kind of a cheap colour version, mm-hmm. which is quite a good price, I think about 12, 13, 14 quid, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then there's a luxury version, which is about 25 quid. So that's on Blurb. But uh, yeah, you can find it on Just Giving if you want to download a, an e-copy um, for free and then just donate to Mind Charity. Um, but the books will have an extra interview with Ramsey Campbell, who's a big name in Cthulhu, plus other bits as well. I heard on Facebook that the luxury version comes with an actual Cthulhu that creeps out after darkness in the depths of the night and kills you in your bed. No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay, that was very... Um, Dear Blue Box podcast team, this is a quick note to say a huge thank you to all of you for surprising the Wireless Theatre Spring Hill Saga team with a mention on last week's show. (laughs) This was somewhat unexpected, and we're especially delighted to see that not only were we mentioned, but there was a healthy period given over by you all to audio and podcast drama, especially your enthusiasm for Big Finish. As was mentioned by you, we all do it for the love of the medium and the stories we can tell in that medium. So to be listening to your podcast and have the work of our team, Big Finish and others acknowledged, was such a wonderful thing to hear. Thank you for your enthusiasm towards the Spring Hill Saga, Wireless Theatre, Big Finish and others. The more audio drama, the better, we say. And little things like this can help everyone go a long way together. Best, Jack Bowman and Robert Valentine. Excellent. We salute you, sir. Hmm. I don't know this Spring Hill saga, so oh, you weren't here on the last no, podcast. No, no. Lee, give me your opinion on audio drama. Uh, in what way? I, I think it's great. Well, that'll do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, big finish. I adore. Always have done, really, from the, from the offset. Even the Sirens of Time when it first came out, and everybody was like, oh, "I'm not sure about this." I loved it. Um, I, it's great, isn't it? it? Just it's like old time radio and, and the stuff that we grew up in the seventies. Listen to things on radio as well. Use your ima- imagination a lot more. If it's well written as well. Well, this is what it. Makes the difference. It's halfway in between books and TV, really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, nowadays with the sound effects and the music you can throw at it, you can build a huge picture. Apocalypse element, I think. Um, Doctor Who was cinematic when it came out. It felt massive, and it was. It just. I loved it. Everybody around me seemed to think it was very noisy and a bit too much I thought it was fantastic it was almost like the, you know it was preempting the time war it's that same effect as when you first saw the Iron Legion in Dot Two Weekly yeah exactly all of a sudden Huge. it's like yeah seeing the, the panoramic yeah opens cinemascope up, comes out and yeah. all of a sudden it's but on the other, other end Chimes of Midnight for instance is a very small compact and mm. quite a paranoid insular story and that yeah. works beautifully as well the thing about Having it on audio is, when you've got a book and you're reading it yourself, you've got all the voices in your head, as well as all the pictures in your head, as well as all the sounds in your head, I guess. Mm. But when you've got an audio drama, because they're providing the voices for you, I think that's one step towards giving you the pictures. Mm. In other words, what I mean is, if you're reading a book, then you're basically describing it for yourself. So a book, where how to phrase this... A book is limited by your own imagination because everything that you represent in your mind from what you're reading on the page has to spring from your mind. Whereas with an audio drama, an audio play, because they're giving you the voices and the soundscapes, what they're doing is 
making you reach into different parts of your imagination for those pictures. Mm. So what's happening is it's in between, so you don't actually get the pictures, mm. so you still have to imagine the pictures, but they're giving you just enough of a step towards those pictures mm. that you they're making you see the pictures that they can see. It's an obvious thing, but, you know, when you're driving or you're doing exercise or ironing or whatever... Then, you know, reading a book is out of the question. Watching TV you can do whilst you're ironing, but you can't do it whilst you're driving, stuff like that, or travelling. Um, when I went to Australia, I was bored to tears, so I took an MP3 full of stuff that I just downloaded, or bought and downloaded, rather, and a whole load of stuff that I hadn't, which was old-time radio dramas that just free out. They're out there for free anyway. And I spent a good 20 hours of the flight there and back, I suppose, listening to audio. It's great, absolutely fantastic. I couldn't read, I fell asleep too quickly I can watch the TV for too long either on the back of the seat but with those you can close your eyes you can just fall into the stories and if they're well written they'll keep your um, interests up but you can spot a badly written one really quickly and badly acted I think there's a problem sometimes my biggest problem and I think this affects Big Finish a little bit more than other things I've heard mm. and it's not really a problem per se but Radio voices. I think mm, with Big Finish, yeah. because it's kind of got that cottage industry, mm. family business type feel to it, once you fall into that pattern, that becomes the pattern. So there's kind of a thing with a lot of Big I mean, Finish. Things like over-enunciation and things like that. Where yeah, it's, it's, stuff, it's not over-enunciation, but over-stress. Mm. There's mm. A, there is a there's a radio voice there's a radio yeah. acting voice that's been around for donkey's years yeah yeah and you know that's changed with um, regional voices and bringing in you know the common voice a little bit more you know just people talking like that no 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 what I'm talking about is stress radio stress oh overstressing oh yeah yeah when you overstress to punctuate your point because uh, you kind of I think when you're doing audio you kind of fall into the trap of thinking because there's no pictures there the voices need to stress the points more mm. to puncture the points more. Mm. punch up the points more mm. but they don't because there's no pictures there you don't need to do it more you need to do it less and yeah. I think this is a kind of a trap that some people fall into yeah. and it's not like a serious problem but when you hear plays that don't have it they really stick out more and this Spring Hill yeah. saga that I was talking about last time that's one of those that doesn't do it so is it about Spring Hill Jack is that what this is about yeah, I, I might as well tell you great again. Great story, great idea, great legend. Well, uh, the Wireless Theatre Company have done a trilogy of, and each series is three half-hour episodes, basically, telling the story of a early Victorian period policeman who sort of, well, not by accident, but by an accident of birth, gets involved in the case of Spring Hill Jack. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of got a Nightmare Man type quality as well. Yeah, and the reason I brought it up is because the third and final part of the trilogy has just started a couple of weeks ago. The first episode was out a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. I think the next one's out at the end of this month. And then the very last episode, where you finally find out what Spring Hill Jack is, will be out, I don't know, either late this year or early next. Mm. It'd be right up your street, Lee, because it's, it's totally on my audio street, drama. Be. It's nice and short and sweet. It's in Victorian London. It's dealing with urban legends. Well, it's, it's not all in London, but oh, yeah, a lot of yeah. it's in London. And it's early Victorian as opposed to late Victorian. Fantastic. So it so precedes the sort of Sherlock Holmes type thing. Mm. So although it's, it's in that Dickens. same... 
yeah, although it's in the same sort of ballpark as Holmes, it precedes it. So it's mm. a little bit more... Uh, it has a little bit more of a slightly naive quality than that. Okay. Because, well, you know what I mean, the whole yeah. sort of Victorian Holmes, Jack the Ripper type thing. It's not going for that quite so much, but it's doing the Spring Hill Jack thing instead, and it's mm. it's great. You'd love it. I will. I'll go and download it tomorrow. It's sound design. It's actually more effective as something <clears throat> evocative, isn't it? I always think with the big finish ones, particularly like, say, for instance, the Peter Davison... I, the thing I love about Big Finish is it, it kind of tries to slot in in your library. So those stories mm. that happen between stories and the, and the incidental music and everything is there and immediately you're transported back. Mm. And then they let the writing do this thing mm. of let's update it, let's make it a little bit mm. more intricate and a little bit more... Yeah, I mean, you've got, you've got to accept the fact that all of our doctors have got older mm. and their voices are cracking or dropping you know Colin Baker's voice is, is cracking a lot now but it doesn't I don't think it stops anything you you know it's still Colin Baker mm. you know it's still mm. Colin Baker's doctor and uh, it's, I think everybody said that it served him really really well because it has mm. um, yeah it's great no, I, love, I love Big Finish but my problem is there's too much of it I just can't buy it all I can't afford to buy it all no, no. and I one day before I die I have to listen to everything <laughs> they've ever produced. <laughs> Jago and Life, I just need to get that series. Well, there's ten of them now. I know. That's going to set you back a few hundred quid. <laughs> it's mad, isn't it? It is it's mad. Quite... I will do it. I will. But it's just one. Because you know, it's time based. I know. You're yeah. buggered, basically, aren't you? Well, this is what I'm saying about driving. So you you kill yeah. two birds with one stone. Um, uh, what was I listening to the other day? Uh, the Cybermen. The Cybermen um, quadrilogy, which was really good. Um, Scorpius. So it, well, take, it takes four hours. It's four hours long. I think it takes that long to really. You, know, you have to get into the mm, story. Mm. It's it's like an event television. It's you know, it's not full of action in in every one. It, mm. it builds stories. It builds arcs. It builds personalities. Well, then we find time to watch box sets and stuff, don't we? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's yeah. Binge viewing, binge listening, binge listening. Well, yeah. speaking of which, I did some binge listening this weekend. Because I had, well, Series 3 of Survivors came out. Oh, right. I haven't heard that yet. And so I asked if I could have the review copy because, you know, I love Survivors anyway. And I reviewed the first series, but I accidentally, I somehow managed to skip the second series, miss it, when it came out. So I requested the second series as well so I could catch up. And so I was expecting this to take a few days, but it's so bloody good. I listened oh, really? to the entire second series <laughs> yesterday and the entire third series today. Uh. What they've done, it's each box set is for one-hour plays. Yeah. And the first box set was four plays that were sort of interconnected, but the first two set up the disaster with new characters and then the second two told a story that was sort of just after the disaster, the death as they call it. Mm. So the first is the first box set was four one-hour plays that were basically interconnected, that were setting up the world and giving you the new characters, because being Big Finish, they want to bring their own characters into it as well. <clears throat> but then the second series, and subsequently the third series, what they've done is in order to set out how they're going to be able to carry on doing Survivors, because they're fitting this into a fairly small window in the TV series, mm. what they've done is you've got a mixture of the new characters that Big Finish have brought and the classic characters from the TV series from 40 years ago. Right. Well, the, the community, 
Okay. Because you never got to meet everybody in the community in the TV series anyway. It was just the main characters, really. So these other characters that Big Finish had brought in are basically extended members of that community. Mm, Clever. So they've got some original cast members. and Exactly, yeah. yeah. But what they're doing with these box sets is each one, four one-hour episodes, and each one of those one-hour episodes kind of tells its own story, but the four episodes together tell one long four-hour story. Yeah. And what they're doing is, rather than tell a four-hour story each time with all the characters in, they're splitting the characters off into groups on sort of missions or whatever. Yeah, like that. So you get a four-hour story involving four characters, say, in series two, and then a different three characters in series three, and presumably four and five, because they're doing these twice a year. So that. Rather than having some characters who be in each box set and who won't have quite so fulfilling a part, what you're doing is giving three or four characters each time really meaty role. Mm. And then they'll skip the next box set, but they'll be back in the one after that. That's a great idea. Yeah, that's a really clever way of doing it. Yeah. And rather than setting it at the Grange, which was the home base, what they're doing is it's missions. Or when I say missions, like, for instance, Abby Grant on a mission to follow up a lead about where her son might be. Sure. And so they get involved in something, and there's a four-hour story about what they get involved in while they're out on the mission. Mm. Now, the TV series, especially in the episode Law and Order, which is the one that everybody remembers, dealt with some pretty meaty stuff. But because this is 40 years later, and because it's audio as opposed to TV you can get into even meatier stuff. Mm. So not only are these series, these box sets, you know, great for nostalgia because it does involve original characters, great for the imagination because, you know, that whole post-apocalypse thing is, well, me and you, Lee, yes, manner for us anyway. But they've done it with a lot of thought, as you can obviously tell, and a lot of love, but you know they've also been very clever, and it's very hard hitting. Good writers as well. Yeah, of course. And they're not afraid to, well, not afraid to. Jesus, it's like one after another. They're like dominoes in some of these sets. <laughs> they're not afraid to kill people off. They'll introduce somebody, yeah. and you'll think this is going to be a new member of the family. Well, Survivors. And by the end of the episode, was like dead. the seventies version of Game of Thrones, really, <laughs> with the amount of people they used to kill mm. off. So. You know, yeah, it's great. But speaking of, um, you know, the soundscapes that they build, these are the best I've ever heard. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, there's no zombies in this this apocalypse. It's all about... No, it's just... It's all about a virus. It's just nature. Blood. Just and, nature. Yeah. And being outside. And, and that must have have its own tension, especially if you've got to go around the corner with a shotgun, ready to take your legs out because you've got a, a carload of food. And if you remember the original series, they had no incidental music. No, there wasn't, was there? No, what they've done here instead is they're putting in, I hesitate to use the word stings, but in between scenes where you've got a change of location, you've got like essentially a sting. Right. Boom. Like that? No, not really like that, (laughs) Lee, no. But yeah, and occasionally a bit of acoustic guitar. So Mm. you very rarely get anything that would actually constitute what you would describe as a melody. But you're getting little tiny bits of incidental music when there's a change of scene. 
Mm. Or you need passage time. Really. Yeah, a cue to let you know that you're moving on to somewhere else. Yeah. It's fantastic. I mean, I love the Spring Hill saga, but Survivors is my bag. And these, in some areas, they're even improving on the TV series. Wow. I can't recommend them highly enough. If you have ever seen the TV series Survivors, if you like post-apocalyptic stuff at all, even if you're not into audio dramas, you forget you're listening. You really honestly do. The soundscapes and the stories are so immersive. You forget you're listening to something and you think you're watching it. Uh, Christmas is coming up, isn't it? I'm going to stick on my list, I think. Yeah. They're brilliant. Series 3 actually starts off with a new character being introduced with the backstory. So actually, if you want to jump on, you can jump on at Series 3. But I'd recommend no, you go I'll for all three series. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> mm. Should I have another email? This one's referring to the episode we're about to talk about, so we'll have that as a little bit of foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. Dear Boxing Bloosters, a few thoughts on where we're at regarding the Zygon two-parter. This is one of those emails where he's going to attempt to predict what happens in the second episode. Like you've been doing recently. <laughs> yeah, and he thought I was going to do it again, but I'm sorry, Miles, didn't do it this week because we were all running massively late and I don't want it to become a cliche. Anyway... He says, while the current imagining of the Zygons is undoubtedly brilliant, the one thing I wish the Doctor Who team hadn't done is to lose the more fetal form the originals had, with their more curved backs and their faces set back in their heads more. And the teeth! This story, in the day of the Doctor to a degree, tries to convince us that most of the Zygons wish to live in peace, yet they all have these ferocious eyes and vicious teeth which which the originals never had, and which implies aggression. Don't get me wrong, I adore the Zygons, old and new, but I feel that making them look more predatorial actually detracts from the style of them rather than enhances it. Look, I hate the new design. I've got to say, I'm sorry to whoever designed them, but the the original fetal version, like Miles was saying, was definitely the best one. I I, I look at it now, I went back and looked at it with, with Finn, okay, you can see the, you know, bits of makeup and the little microphone in the neck and stuff, but... It was, it was just great. There was something about it that just said totally and utterly alien. Whereas this one, we can see we can see even more so the, the makeup and the fact that the face is just set in this big kind of half crescent moon shaped head. And they look comical. Uh, the ones in Day of the Doctor, I remember saying that they are they look funny and I don't want those arguments to be funny. They were always very terrifying. <clears throat> and I know that actually there's a couple of scenes in last week's one and in this week's where they're just literally standing in the background. They look great like that. But then you get a couple running through the shop and arcade. And I just, you know, I smile. It's like put the Benny Hill music on. It doesn't doesn't convince me. But the thing about the teeth is interesting as well. And the fact that they are aggressive looking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What they've done is they've made them look like testosterogons. <laughs> which is... And I didn't like that. You've been waiting all week to say that. I, I understand the logic. <laughs> no, I made that up <laughs> as I was saying it. <laughs> Different audience, impact TV, they want them to be a bit more yeah. bang in your face. But but I, I don't mind, I, I was, mm. what I was going to say is I don't mind nasty teeth in good people because, you know, I saw, a, mon- mine for crying out I saw a monkey, a couple of monkeys once, right, down in Payton Zoo, and the most terrifying faces I've ever seen. It's like it's almost like a skull with a couple of eyes poking out. It looked like they were going to actually take your face off. They were so... Angry looking, and it, it freaked me out. Were they macaques? Like, yeah, they might have been. They did you macaque yourself? Oh, I did macaque myself. <laughs> they look really, really terrifying. 
but you know, I mean, they were smiling. They looked like they were going to eat your eyeballs. But essentially, they're smiling because they're just smiling. They're just happy. You know what I mean? So, how do you know? Maybe they really maybe did bother they eating. Really, maybe they did. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> Too much mighty boosh. Miles. So, Harry Sullivan was working on a formula that destroys living metal, was he? Um, I mean, which turns Zygons inside out. Or maybe inverts them. Have we been given massive hints as to how this story ultimately resolves? I strongly suspect so, although I hope this is a red herring. You're wrong, Miles. What is it with aircraft this year? First we get the unfeasibly low plane in The Magician's Apprentice, and now we get the slow-moving and again very close presidential jet, presidential jet in the Zygon invasion. And how exactly did Bonnie know exactly where the plane was going to be and how to get to that cliff top just in time to casually chat to the Doctor and nonchalantly get out her rocket launcher and fire the missile. Because it's Doctor Who. It's TV. <laughs> yeah. Come on, Miles. <laughs> Work with her. Unit need to employ more intelligent squaddies. First, that bunch by the church all meekly fall for the Zygon's ruse that somehow all their families happen to be in the same place. Then, when Jack gets dumped by gets duped by Bonnie, the entire squad with her just lower their weapons and allow themselves to get turned into Donald Trump's electric hair pieces. <laughs> Do you know the thing about the scene by the church where they get taken in? Mm. It's not about... It's not so much about whether they believe it as to whether there's a shadow of a doubt because if there's a shadow of a doubt, you're not going to kill your own family, right? Mm, yeah. Um, it is, yeah. I appreciate what you, it's, it's a pretty intense situation emotionally for anyone. Mm. You know deep down that it's a Zygon pretending, but you know, there's yeah. just that little niggle that says, is it? Because if they did know exactly which squad of soldiers was on the plane, do you know what? And I they think... did track down their families, and even if they only tracked down one family and pretended to be the others. How do you know which is which? It, it, I think it was unfortunate because it kind of came across almost like they went in there trance-like. Mm. And I think that was the... It was like they all kind of went... Yeah. Well, that's because nobody along. else in the scene was um, no. paid for dialogue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the trouble. Yeah, It's a TV budget. No, again, I, I, I understood why it was there. Miles um, says, I wasn't too keen on the Doctor's attitude towards killing in this episode. Firstly, he stands meekly by while the missile strike in Termezistan was going on. Then he tells the unit soldiers to try and kill as few as possible and doesn't interject when Walsh is getting all trigger-happy and bloodthirsty. And as a soldier, she's not very good at following orders, is she? Those niggles aside, wow, what another stunning episode. I suspect that Kate Stewart isn't dead and the one we saw talking to Bonnie was the original having overpowered or shot the Zygon in New Mexico. I also reckon that either the Doctor will sonic the plane, or being the presidential plane, it will already have technology on board to allow it to either escape or neutralise the missile. Yeah, parachute. Or they'll eject. <laughs> yes, he says or they'll eject. Oh, did he? Oh. Will part two be more like a standard second episode, or will we go into new territory like Stephen Moffat usually does? Should be another corker either way. Catch you earlier. M. Good stuff, good uh, predictions there. Well, we've got some audio feedback, but we'll okay. save that till later <coughs> because, well, that's our perfect cue to talk about the episode, isn't it? Mm. Mm. All right, Simon, since Lee's been hogging this, did you like it? 
this isn't. I'm going to be completely honest and say as I see it, I think this was possibly one of the most important episodes of Doctor Who ever. <clears throat> I think subject matter wise, and I think the tone of it, and certainly that scene, that scene which we will talk about. Just Looks it's like another we one. Already are, Mister Brett. Yeah, I I just think it was. You're talking about more the bit where up there. Well, yeah, the the big showdown. No, the I was going to be facetious and say one of the other scenes. <laughs> <laughs> I I just absolutely loved it, um, but it was more than just loving it. I kind of is, is it weird to respect it in as much as the writing was so so good and the acting and the acting was just off the scale. It really was off the scale. Um, it was just a brilliant piece of television. So that's really a did. 10 from Simon. Lee? I've got to echo everything Simon's just said. That Something happened in this episode which is really odd. I used to get um, I used to get quite emotional, the Russell T Davis ones. He's very good at having people with good dialogue, acting really well, and he catches you. Father's Day, you know, the th- Doomsday with Rose and the Doctor. All these things. Yeah, yeah, big girl me. Inside I was kind of like internally getting a little bit emotional and I get this tingle up my spine. And I have not had any of that during Stephen Moffat here. I'm not saying it isn't emotional. It is. It's brilliant. But there's something about the way that Stephen delivers his stories. It's different. I find him interesting and fun and whatever. But not necessarily <clears throat> deep-rooted emotion. Right? This, this, That moment when he started, you know, pulling it out of the bag of that speech. Wow. I, You know, my whole body just froze. And I can feel I'm tingling now just talking about it. Mm. Unbelievable. That that's what TV's about. Have you ever seen a film called The Postman? Uh what, with um, Kevin Costner? Yeah. I haven't actually. That's a post apocalyptic. Yeah, yeah, and actually, although it got absolutely panned. Have you ever seen it, Simon? No. Right, no. it got absolutely panned. But it's one of those films that everybody'll tell you is a big pile of steaming shit. <laughs> and it's not. It's actually quite a good film. It's not yeah. a brilliant film, but it's quite a good film. But at the end of the film, you've got three hours set in this post-apocalyptic landscape where you've got, a bit like The Stand, you've got kind of a face-off between, well, basically between Kevin Costner and between this gang, essentially, I suppose, that want to be in charge. Mm. And right at the very end of the film, you come to something that was set up right at the very start of the film. And it's a bit like the whole... Every time the Doctor returns to Gallifrey, is he the president or isn't he the president? Because that's the thing that's been set up that's never been sort of, mm. or at least at the time, it, it was never it was never finished. No, so true. every time he went back to Gallifrey, there was always this thing yeah. about whether he was really actually the president or not. In The Postman, okay, I'll spoil it because nobody's actually going to go out and watch The Postman thanks to this podcast. <laughs> right at the start of the film, Kevin Costner plays this, bloke who gets sort of inveigled into this gang and in this gang this group this bunch whatever you want to call them they have a rule whereby you can single you can challenge the leader um played by oh is it will Patton? um mm. no surname is Patton. i can't think of his first name anyway if you challenge not the guy from aliens is it no no, if you challenge the leader of Absolutely. this gang to trial by single combat, <clears throat> that's the only that's the only way where anybody can take over from. There's no voting or anything. 
but he will take anybody on in single combat. And of course, everybody's scared of him, so nobody does. But there's a scene, I can't remember exactly how it goes down because it's been years since I saw it, where Kevin Costner either takes this on board and remembers it, whatever. Three hours later in the film, you come to the big face-off between Kevin Costner's good guys and Will Patton, or whatever he's called, bad guys. And there's about to be this huge bloody battle on this plane. And you've got like a thousand extras in this plane all dressed up. And there's going to be this big, big battle. And Will Patton strides up. And they're about to have the, you know, the final face-to-face confrontation before war breaks out. Mm -hmm. And Will Patton walks up. And Kevin Costner walks up. And Kevin Costner says to him, you don't remember me, do you? And he says, no. And Kevin Costner says, I was in your gang. And he shows him the tattoo or whatever it is to prove that he was in the gang. And I escaped. He says, but because I was in your gang, I can challenge you here and now to trial by single combat. And whoever wins that single combat gets to be in charge of your gang. And that's it. This huge three-hour film with thousands of extras lined up on this field at the end of it comes down to a single moment of conflict between Mm. Will Patton and Kevin Costner Mm. over who gets the rights to be in charge. And of course, Kevin Costner wins. We all know that before I even started talking. And so there's no big battle at the end. It's resolved by, okay, physical fisticuffs between two people, but it is essentially resolved in a peaceable fashion that at no point during the course of the film could you have expected, and yet that at the end of the film is entirely logical because of what was set up at the start of the film. And that's what Peter Harness has done with the Zygons here, isn't it? I might as well have been talking about this episode as I was saying all that. Okay, so this episode does two things. Slipping my tea, so... Bear of you saying, what are those two things, JR? I'm what are those what two are things? Those I can think of one of them. Can you think of the other one? Um, I'm, <clears> I'm just going to go blank and let, let JR take, okay. take his stand. One of the things it does, which essentially is what you were talking about, Lee, and what I was just talking about now, is that it takes the last two minutes of the Doctor's daughter and plays it for real. Because mm. the last two minutes of the Doctor's daughter is one of the most horrible two minutes in all of modern Doctor Who, to be frank. The bit where he, the bit where David Tennant says, not on my watch, sort of thing, it's just horrible and mawkish and sentimental and doesn't work. Here, instead of having it as this added-on scene at the end of an episode that was really about something else, they made this whole story about that. And then they gave that scene the time, you know, the screen time mm-hmm. and the presence and the awareness to really work. And so, like you both said, this is one of those scenes that is going to go down in Doctor Who history, much like the confrontation between the Doctor and Davros did in the first Mm. two-parter. This felt very much of a piece with that, Mm. in that sense, in that first episode's kind of fun, different kind of fun this week to The Magician's Apprentice, but the first episode was kind of Doctor Who-y fun. This was a classic Doctor Who-y type fun, and that was a new series, Doctor who type fun. But the first episode sets you up for something that you think you're going to get. And then the second episode says, hang on a second, wait, here's the thing. And they go and do something different, but something that springs logically out of everything that's gone before. Mm-hmm. And something that's magical and classic and just, well, there's no words really, are there? Relevant. It was great. It was brilliant. 
Yeah, and it is relevant it to is. the modern world. I think, and, and that could have been, you know, uh, some people will look for something that's wrong with it and will <clears> probably <throat> say that it was kind of obvious to do that. Well, it's propaganda. And, the first episode was all about, you know, ISIS and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Post-Gulf War kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. The and the second the episode is basically propaganda about that same situation or about any situation. It's the psychology of it. Um, in as much as that you have to be you have to make a conscious decision to live together simple as that really you've got to make a conscious decision no 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 you have to make a conscious decision to not want to live together but that's an easier decision to make okay yeah yeah I mean we all know what it's about we know we know what it's you know what the metaphor is what I what I think I loved about this was the fact that it was Doctor Who just going up a level not given a toss about what anybody else thought because uh, this is a family show okay isn't it and there are young children watching it who are going to be terrified by the blobby bloke in the superstore i think because like simon you pointed out it's some of the best makeup ever mm. that, that was face. a little bit like the kind of thing you had in the philip pinchcliffe years arc in yeah. space yeah. oh yeah. yeah no i love that mm. definitely yeah. Bit, yeah. Of, bit of body bit horror. of a modern spin on that yeah. it was but everybody's taken it they weren't taking it too seriously. It wasn't too up itself. It was perfectly toned. The whole thing was had the tone right, rather. You know, in that shop, it, you didn't know what was going to happen. You didn't know whether Zygon was going to turn on any one of them and do something. He kept trying to shoot the doctor or whatever, you know. And then he turns on himself and I think, no. And then he doesn't. And then he does. And you think, this is brilliant. It it, it could have easily been played like the Absorber of. It could have been played like for laughs or whatever. Mm. It wasn't. It was really quite quite serious it's how Torchwood should have been I think it was much mm. more of a Torchwoody type of episode yeah yeah. it was, it was also great. there was a lovely nod back to Silence in the Library at the start of the episode in the way Clara was brought in the sort of yes <clears throat> right, the Mr Moon type yeah, yeah it was that kind of yeah. situation a great bit where she opens the door only to find you know wooden planks yeah, I mean, that is a bit of a cliche, but I found it all yeah, quite, but it quite like really Mars, nicely. Life on Mars, that's right. That's exactly yeah. right, yeah. And what they did was, it was only for two minutes. And then you kept coming back to it, but it, they didn't dwell on it. No. They said, right, Clara's aware, and so here we've given you some yes. sort of metaphors for her awareness, like television set. Mm. Now just getting all the story. Yeah, yeah. brilliant. And the great so it was great. It was a great way to throw you out, because... As we were watching that, for the first 20 seconds, all three of us looking at the screen thinking, where have we jumped to? And then all of a sudden it's like, oh no, we've not jumped anywhere in time. No. We've jumped somewhere in inner space. Yeah, yeah. and I like the fact that it didn't, it didn't, it could have really made a big deal out of that, but I kind of assumed, it assumed mm. that the viewer is intelligent. And that's what I loved. And it assumed it that yeah. we, we know that, that's part of our culture yeah. now. We, we know about the Matrix, we know about, you know, life on Mars, we know that, Mm. It's a way. We know all the, the Danny situations. We've been there last Christmas. We've had it with Missy and the yeah, yeah. slice of Gallifrey Tunnel. Basically, if you've ever seen Doctor Who before, you knew what yeah. was going on. Mm. So, like you mm. say, and you, we all had the same moment about twenty seconds into that bit where yeah. we all suddenly went. Oh. But, the, the, <laughs> but the interesting thing was, it was a, a fantastic and direct link to her copy. Mm. So you know, there is a moment it's where a she's trying to mm. move the rocket away mm. and you think yeah she's gonna she's gonna say this is how they're gonna save the daughter it's brilliant and of course they don't no so you had a double <laughs> no, so you had a double his, moment 
Yeah. So first of all, you had the moment, oh, that's how she's going to do it. Yeah. And then you had a moment, oh, no, she's not. No, she's not. But you know, they missed a trick. They missed a trick with the Doctor's parachute. Obviously, it had the Union Jack on it, obviously. They had just done that James Bond thing where you actually saw him coming through the air with the old... Um... Oh, glad they didn't. <laughs> no. They might have done it, it just didn't work. You never know. But, oh, no, no. Do you think Clo- it's a bit too much? Oh, yeah, as long as it didn't show a close-up. Can't bear that. Of... Sorry, I missed that. Well, of the uh, of the of them um, coming down on the parachute, the, you know, like a close up of Roger Moore coming down with his parachute after yeah. um, oh, which one green starts off with skiing? Spy Love Me. Is that a Spy Love Might Me? Have been. Yeah. Few, uh, and they no, spoil the later one. Few yeah. hours only. Yeah, yeah, I think oh, it yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it does really well up until the point where they show him close up with the blue, <laughs> blue screen behind <laughs> him. It just looks yeah. terrible. Completely shatters the illusion, but yeah, yeah. but um, they didn't do it, and that that no. again kept its it was beautifully serious measured. and its integrity. Yeah, yeah, you know, it had it on the floor, but it didn't make a meal of it, which I thought was quite quite good actually. Mm, mm. There were lots yeah. of predictable bits, like mm. the bit with Kate Stewart, <clears throat> where you know, is the real Kate Stewart pretending to be a Zygon? Well, I get... didn't, I've got to say, I didn't realise that, and I thought the method in which she disposed of the Zygon was exactly how the Brigadier would have done it. That, but five that rounds actually, rapid. Yeah, but that actually, f- the that, thing is, that, so that was quite thought, serious. Mm, yeah. She shot something, she shot a living something. In Doctor Who, we get to see somebody shoot somebody with a revolver. Gun. Yeah, right? I haven't seen that for a while, where somebody actually shoots somebody with a gun and kills them dead. Um, and then she makes that slight joke about the five rounds rapid. To me, that is the weakest line that's the only thing I agree completely all it needed was I'm sorry I'm I'm a father daughter that's all it needed yeah we we get it yeah yeah or I think perhaps it's the way it was delivered yeah well because I think there there were three ways you could have gone with that line you could either deliver it like she did Mm. which was like she delivered it as if she didn't know what the line meant no she delivered it as if the character didn't know what the line meant but the actress did and that's yeah. why it failed because it either needed to be delivered like the character did or like the actress didn't. It either needed to be delivered completely seriously mm. or completely with a wink, but it was sort of in this horrible yeah, place. Yeah, it needed to be between. kind of dry, I yeah. think, with the way her, yeah. her character is. Too. I had, yeah. I mean, everybody's a writer, yeah? So there's that, there's that <laughs> moment where I, I would have said, just show one shot, one shot's enough to take out Zygon, okay? And then he would have said, oh, it would have been five rounds rapid, and she goes, no, it was one shot. Something like that would be much cooler from her perspective and well, his... more colder and, no, I had to just get on with the job. Mm. I don't th- know why that line was there There's a her. thing in Doctor Who over the last two or three years mm. where they reference lines from the classic series. Yeah. Like, oh, you've redecorated, I don't like it. That's okay. <clears throat> yeah, but Stephen Moffat, this is one of my few quibbles with him, he'll just throw the line in exactly as is. Mm. So, oh, you've redecorated, I don't like it. Or else he'll invert the line completely. So he'll say something like, oh, it's smaller on the outside. I don't want that. I don't want either of those things. If you're going to reference something from the past, I'd like you to take the expression and express it in a new way so that people who know what the expression is yeah. can say, oh, fair enough, that's a reference yeah, that to makes that it, character. Yeah, it's makes all part of the same line. world. Yeah. But if you're actually saying the actual line... Mm. then that's too much of a wink to the audience. Mm. And if you're inverting it completely, that's an even bigger wink to the audience because that's saying, I know what the line is and I'm inverting it yeah. as well. Mm. So well, I'm, I'm really hoping... Um, what's her name again, the actress? Kate Stewart's... Oh, it's um, 
from the huge famous actress yeah go on. massively yeah. huge yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. massively huge. um I, you know I, I don't want to insult her acting or anything but i i just don't think this is the, the character that she should be playing i've part of, no power of three oh. she was great in that everything since i've not been convinced by the fact that that's a person in that don't role she's great in day the doctor i don't think she is i do i think i mentioned that as well mm. But that that's my own personal thing and it but this this She's week, too she nice. Was, she was no, she was really good in this one because she became she was trying to become the Zygon, she was looking you know, the way she delivered the lines, there was no lightness to it, it was quite hard. Mm. And that worked. She mm. was good at doing that. And that's how her character should be, actually. Well Must yeah, but she's the leader of unit because yeah. of her scientific capabilities, yeah, know, not because right. of the military. This thing. is the yeah, thing, isn't true. it? That What's interesting kind of... about her is the contrast between her and her father. Mm. And, and in this all of a sudden mm. she was but she's Yeah, less... but deliberately so because of the story. Yeah, yeah. But she is actually less sciencey than we realise. When we every time we see her, it is her being in charge of quite a military operation. There's mm. no kind of getting a coat off and then sitting in front of a no, doing no. some lab testing or whatever. You don't get that feeling that she's no, a no. scientist. So one or the other. Um, and I just, I don't know, maybe she just hasn't got enough meat in the, of the character to get her teeth into as an actress. I haven't seen her in anything Maybe else, so. But well, she's, she's, she's making great. a decision with a box and that and closing the door. That was a beautifully that, measured. Exactly. Brilliant. Mm. But then she had to deliver the five rounds rapid like she's been doing... The yeah, that was the one. Just week. <clears throat> that was the Sorry. one-off moment. But the, no, the character apart from that was great. Okay, good looking too. Oh, one very quick thing. To <laughs> uh, two boxes, that was very much like at the end of Pyramids and Mars. Yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah, I, oh, yeah. It does. I said something like, "Oh, there's probably a Jack in the Box in it," because it's because you were thinking Snake Dance, but no. <laughs> No, it's Hinchcliffe. <laughs> no, I was thinking the doctor's not, uh, not going. Not Snake Dance, Kinder. Not the doctor would not put these things in there. We we fell that anyway. We had a quick discussion while someone was out the room for two seconds, and I just said, I don't think that's the kind of thing the doctor or Harry Sullivan would do anyway. But we still didn't know what was in the box. But I, me in my head, I thought well, he'd probably do something like you press the button and out pops a little flag going bang or something like that. You know. That would be a very doctorish way of doing it. But in a way, I'm so glad he didn't no, <laughs> make no, it jokey because it was such a ultimately brilliantly serious concept. Well, that leads me to the other thing that this episode did, which is what I was going to get onto about 20 minutes ago before it was derailed. Um, I thought it was our job. <laughs> this episode was a sequel to Day of the Doctor. Yes. Right. No, not in the way you think I'm about to say. This wasn't a sequel to Day of the Doctor in that this is carrying on the story of what the Zygons were up to. No. This is a sequel to Day... They almost mentioned it on screen. They almost went there. Mm -hmm. Day of the Doctor is a story about two races at war with one another and the pressing of a single button will wipe out both races and the planet or and the universe Mm -hmm. that they're fighting in and this story was about two races who are at war and there's a button on a box and you press the button on the box and that will wipe out both races and both stories end the same way the button on the box doesn't get pressed and everybody lives Mm. except of course the Daleks destroy themselves around the planet Gallifrey except of course they don't because we know they carry on living and except of course the Gallifrey gets put into a pocket universe except because we know it's coming back at some point because we've already seen in time of the Doctor that somehow it's back the point being Peter Harness has said 
<coughs> or rather, Stephen Moffat has said to Peter Harness, right, let's do a Zygon two-parter. And Peter Harness has said to Stephen Moffat, okay, should we go back to Day of the, Do- Day of the Doctor and carry on the story of the Zygons from there? Because that's a perfect in into telling a Zygon story. Because I, th- I believe that Stephen Moffat didn't specify that when he said to Harness, Zygon two-parter. I believe that situation came out of the discussions they had afterwards. Mm. Mm. So it could have been. This this two-parter could have been entirely divorced from that altogether. Mm. Peter Harness, bloody clever writer. Because not only has he gone back to Day of the Doctor and said, right, what what can we extrapolate from the way the story is finished there? Not only has he done that, but he's actually physically put the ending of that story that had nothing to do with the Zygons, of course, because the Zygons were foreshadowing a different element of the resolution to that story, and now the resolution to that story itself has foreshadowed the resolution to this story. Mm. So, and it... And not only that, in the way he set it up, the first part and the second part, and used certain Stephen Moffat tropes, he's kind of... It's not imitation. He's kind of homaged the person who's asked him to write the script in writing the script. Yeah. It's, it, on the surface of it, it looks like a fairly bog-standard thriller. And actually, if you look at the mechanics of the plot, it's a fairly bog-standard thriller. But if you look beyond the mechanics of the plot and you look at the subtext of everything that's happening, it's actually a pretty deep and quite layered, mm. quite textured piece of work. And it's actually a beautiful um, conglomeration of classic and modern Doctor Who, if there is going to be some kind of distinction between the two. It is a hybrid. It's the perfect hybrid. Well, Toby Whithouse was as well. Mm, mm. So this was very much like that in that respect. Mm, mm. It felt like... I had a feeling it would before we saw it, but it felt like the sort of... I really didn't expect it to be as good as it was, though. It felt like a paradigm story for Series 9. Whatever happens in the last four episodes and whatever happened in the first six, this felt like kind of... You know how I said about um, Mummy on the Orient Express was Series 8 in a nutshell? And then I said the girl who died was kind of Series 9 in a nutshell. This is kind of Series 9 not in a nutshell in the way that was, but this is reflecting back the whole of the rest of Series 9 at itself. Mm. In a way, that's how it felt to me. <clears throat> there was this lovely moment where... This is going to win the polls at the end of the year, I suspect. Listen, if he doesn't get wow. a BAFTA for that performance, it'd be a bloody crime. But, um, you know, there, there's, there is the moment. There is a wonderful moment. Because his acting is unbelievably good in this. And it's the Capaldi that I've really wanted since the off, where he's... Apart from the American accent yeah, bit, sorry, I didn't yeah. like that much. No, 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 no. No, he's the Doctor. He's pissing around, he's having a... He's doing He's, he's doing that because he's making them feel, this is ridiculous. What well, you're doing is ridiculous. He's kind of almost... Well, also, yeah, but well. also yeah, he's deliberately mirroring deliberate. Missy there as well. Yeah, there's a bit of that. It's, the do- it's Doctor Who, so we've got to have that. But he's spinning around on his heels, and he's, he's delivering everything that's that's needed for this for this. Well, he draws he draws the reaction he wants out of Kate, doesn't he? Because yeah. he starts mucking around. She goes, "This isn't the game," and he virtually says, "Well, I'm glad you've noticed." Exactly. Yeah. So he's oh, always, yeah, he keeps calling ranting, ranting yeah. kids. You know, that's what they are. But you know, he puts he says something about, "Oh, can't you just talk?" And there's a moment where he puts his hands in his head and shake, you know, and shakes his head. And all I could see there was, you know, all the times that John Perry has been out 
talking to Lethbridge Stewart and all these, for God's sake, just talk. Draconian, just talk, just talk, just talk, just talk. And he's been looking for peace for a thousand years mm-hmm. and hoping one day someone's going to sit and listen to him. And he's, it's almost like he's totally fed up to his back teeth of saying the same thing over and over and over again. It's going to make it really hard for when he has to do this again in the future. Um, Let's know. not underestimate um, Jenna Coleman's performance in that oh, as the mirror to that. Oh, she's ex- great. Yeah. In those scenes where she's talking to herself and the way she was, as an actress, she yeah. was delineating between the two different variations on the character. Yeah. It was fantastic. Mm. Yeah, she was back up to... She was back up to speed this week and the last couple of weeks. She was given something so much. She was given the something first, to do this time. I thought in the first four episodes she was a bit weaker this year. I thought they might be doing that on purpose to get us used to her not being there, but I'm sure that isn't the case. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought so. <laughs> but then since then, I mean, obviously there was an episode where she was more or less missing, but in those three episodes since the first four that she's been fully in, she's been great. Yeah. Um, again, it was a story in which... Clara's bit felt kind of to me separated off. It's almost like Clara. It's almost like this series. Clara's had a bit, and in the Toby Whithouse story, in the second episode of that, it was Clara has to g everybody up, and in particular this guy that she wants to go and fetch the mobile phone. Mm. So Clara's bit is the bit where she persuades him to go and fetch the mobile phone. And then, you know, in um, The Girl Who Died, there's the bit on the spaceship where she has to have the speech where she says, right, you've seen that we've got technology you weren't expecting now, turn tail and leave. That was Clara's bit. And in this episode as well, the bit where the Clara inside the cocoon in the sort of memory space that we see is trying to take control of the Clara on the outside. That was Clara's bit. Last year, she felt like an organic part of the drama. This year, and this has got nothing to do with the fact, this is the kind of thing that I've heard suggested, it's like, is Clara not quite so good this year because they weren't expecting her to be there, so they've not written her as well? They've not given her things to do? No, because if they weren't expecting her to be there but somebody else, they would have given that somebody else more things to do to prove themselves. So it's not that at all. But it does feel this year almost as if having been such an integral part of the drama last year, that that kind of means the people writing it this year have forgotten how to write a companion. Mm. So they're sort of forcibly giving the companion things to do. Whereas before, you'd just give the companion things to do rather than forcibly doing it. The companion thing has been odd this year because you've had Missy having Clara as the companion for for an episode. And then you had uh, Maisie... Williams mm-hmm. as the companion to the doctor and being you know and Clara being missing and then this time around it was Osgood being the companion to the doctor this is Clara. what I mean so it's been an odd kind of it's all yeah they're having so to Clara's shoe become Clara supporting in shoe, yeah it's almost been, yeah. It's like she'd been shoehorned in and prior to last year because last year told a story where the doctor's post regeneration angst was tied up across the entire series with a companion who was having an off-tardis relationship. So the whole thing last year was really organic, but really different. Mm. And it almost feels this year, it feels to me like they've forgotten what the companion is. So all these things that they just naturally write, 
Oh, but the could focus, be conscious. The focus it could be is, conscious to give the doctor some, you know, give no, him I some. I don't think it is playroom. because at the end of every episode, the doctor's reasserting mm. his faith in his companion. He did it in so many words this week, I think. Do you know? I mean, they've not really done, apart from Deadly Assassin, they've not really had the doctor on his own, have they? This is, this is almost. But the specials with David Tennant, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Mm. So it's almost, it's almost proving again that you could run about six episodes or something with Peter Crowley as a doctor on his own but as we've seen before the character can't handle it for too long because he goes a bit mad and does stupid things so you need the companion to anchor him mm. um, but it has but been you, interesting that it's not been Clara this time around you need so the companion much. to anchor the audience as well yeah and you know I that know. is absolutely crucial people say oh you could do without that and I think you know, and I think the specials actually proved it, that it's absolutely mm. crucial that you need somebody to care about. And it's, you know, very pe- people will very blithely say, oh, but I care about the Doctor. Mm, you, said that like, you said that like Julian Clary then. Did I? Yeah. Anyway, carry well, on. The, mm, no, people care about the Doctor. No, Julian uh, Clary, not um, Mr Humphreys. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot my point. Sorry. Rewind yourself. But you're saying about rooting, rooting the audience down with the. Uh, so, Doctor, somebody you aspire to. Mm. It's not somebody you come in Relate on a to. level with. No. So, while you can say, "Oh yes, I care about the Doctor," yes, of course you care about the Doctor, but you don't care as the Doctor. <sighs> I don't think it's anything as dramatic as losing their way with writing the companion, because I you think the episodes have worked. No, 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 I think it is. I think I think when you do some... It's like... Uh, try and find an analogy for this. If you're... If you're driving a stick shift car... Mm. I don't know what we call it in this country. That's what they call it in America, isn't it? Manual. Regular gears, manual. If you're driving a manually geared car and you've been driving for 20 years and then somebody gives you an automatic for a year... And at the end of that year, you get used to driving the automatic. Mm. So if you then go back to a manual, it takes you a little while to get used to the manual again. Right, last year, after 50 years of Doctor Who, we had something completely different with the companion. And it feels to me this year like they're just getting back used to having just the regular type companion yeah. again. Yeah, the kind of thing that Sarah Jane would do. You know, she'd get caught and I have to the say, doctor um, had to rescue her a bit and, you know, she'd be a little part of the plot but not massive. Yeah, it does feel... Yeah, was it, was it Stephen Moffat in Doctor Who magazine said about it, it was going to be the Doctor and Clara of the Glory Years? Mm. And I've kind of been expecting that. So, yeah, it's it has not really transpired, not been, has it? No, no. no. So, and you can see... In doctor Who the Glory Years. <laughs> you could see from the way Clara was with the 11th Doctor before Series 8 happened... And from the way she was with Peter Capaldi, in spite of all this extra stuff that was going on last year, what she and Peter Capaldi should be like, mm. you know, how much fun that relationship could be without any of the romantic stuff entangling them, this older man and this younger girl who have this kind of yeah. chemistry, because they had great mm. chemistry in Series 8, mm. the chemistry's kind of disappeared a bit. Yeah, kind of, she's being kept at arm's length. There is a bit there, isn't there? But I don't think there is, because... Well, I mean, there yeah. is a little bit, sort of, in the subplot that's carrying through for the story arc, but I don't think it's supposed to carry through in the way that it has done, 
because, like I say, the Doctor keeps reaffirming their relationship at the end of every episode. Mm. And I think that's not supposed to be him just giving lip service to it. I think that's actually supposed to be happening, which is supposed to make his loss at the end of the series when she goes all the greater. It's just that. You're not feeling it. You're just being told about it, which is the true meaning of show, not tell. You need to feel the relationship rather Mm. than just be told about the relationship. And those glory years haven't really come about. Which is not to say that's been a great thing that spoiled the episodes or anything. No. But I mean, some some of the episodes have been great in spite of it, and some of the episodes have been not so good, but not because of it. Mm. But that's just been this little niggle that's been throughout the whole series so far. The, you know, the, it was addressed at the end of the episode, wasn't it, with Osgood? Because f- fans around the world, including ourselves, I'm sure, have thought, wouldn't it be great if Osgood was on the TARDIS? How great would that be? I've seen over the last two episodes that wouldn't work. Um, because Osgood's changed. She's changed from the person. We, everybody was like fond of the Osgood before. Mm. She was like, she'd be great in the TARDIS as that character. And now she's changed. She's lost her sister. You know, her mm. She's sister. lost her innocence. She's lost her innocence. Yeah, she's become grown up almost. And, you know, and it's it's not quite, it wouldn't work. And the writers know this. So they threw that in as a, a bit of, you know, uh, lip service I suppose to the fans to say okay we're, we're going to ask her but she's going to say no is yeah, that right yeah. you don't mind that do you and who knows she might come on next year for a little bit as well <clears> but <throat> there was a really interesting moment when he asks her and there was no reaction shot there was no close up of Clara or anything Clara's just smiling in the background now if that had been Rose you know you'd have got that jealousy s- jealousy kick yeah. in there wasn't anything that it would have been quite nice maybe uh, to just to see some kind of a reaction whether it be Oh, that's nice, or something like that. There was nothing. Yeah, yeah. I was I'm surprised why that was left out because it's a big thing to ask somebody on the TARDIS, especially if you've been travelling with Clara yeah, for about Clara should three have or four years. As much as hey, hang on, this is my gig, you know. Uh, well, either that or oh no, that'd be great. Why don't you come on board? Or yeah. I don't think it would have been that'd be great though. No, because no. that's that control freak thing. People said when he said she's a control freak that that came out of the blue in deep breath, but it didn't. She's always controlled. Exactly, so her traveling with the doctor. Been quite good. So I if think. he's inviting somebody on full time when she's still traveling part time, yeah, that should have been a hang on a second. Mm, this is my gig. Yeah, I'm supposed to be in charge of how mm. this works. So it's interesting. There was no reaction. Yeah, Whether that was on purpose. Yeah, but then again, I think the director missed a trick in The Girl Who Died when, because that scene where the Doctor gives immortality to a shielder and doesn't, very ostentatiously doesn't give it to Clara because he even gives a shielder a second Mm. patch to take on for whomsoever she wants Mm. to give this second patch to. So that's two patches Clara's missed out on. And I'm absolutely mm. positive that was written in as a kind of a way of foreshadowing the end of the series when whatever's going to happen to Clara happens to Clara yes. but you didn't you didn't really get that from the director you didn't really get that out of the right, actress okay so are you going to make predictions about the end are we going to be back on earth is there going to be Missy Zygons Daleks whatever all, all mixed up again are they going to bring it all back they're going to mess it up a bit and then it's all going to be you know is Clara is is he gonna have this moment where he looks at the the helmet that was behind them, that's from that very episode where the mm. pat, there's a patch in one of those helmets right behind him. Is he gonna pull that it's out? Probably the same helmet. It? Yeah, it might be mine. But I mean, wh- why have that helmet on display behind him? Uh, yeah, bit of a joke. It just adds a bit of continuity. Yeah, but at the same time, look how important that patch was. It made somebody immortal, didn't it? So mm. maybe whatever's in that helmet 
is there to be used later We've on. already discussed at great length while your fingers have been in your ears how this series is going to end, Lee. Yeah, but you don't know how it's going to end, do you? <laughs> I think it's pretty heavily signposted. Okay, right. Well, a personal, if I'm going to pick up on a niggle, one thing that I... Oh, in fact, sorry, just before you go on to your niggle, it's very heavily signposted, and this episode started with that signpost. Oh, what did it start again? You niggle. Um, Yeah, you know what I mean, don't you? No, go on. Okay, fingers and ears, Lee. If it's going to end up with Clara in some kind of nether suicide face... United in death with Danny. Yes. That's the same as the way this episode started, yeah. where it's taking place in some kind of internal memory space. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The same as start of Silence in the Library and the way River Song ended up at the end of Silence in the Library. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That was, a def- I, that was a signpost, surely. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only a personal niggle, and it flows through the series, actually, is that I'm getting a little bit fed up with people saying stuff which... Ever since it, it goes back to the um, RTD years of, like the face of Bo saying "You are not alone," and then the woman in Planet of the Dead saying "Your song will end soon," and all, this, all these little predictions. And then today, you had uh, Osgood saying, "You know, are you human or the Zygon?" And he said, "You." She says, "You will find that one day." And I'm just thinking, well, how? Just well, why? Not quite why? the same thing. But it wasn't quite the same thing, but I. I it's not soothsaying. That, no, that, that isn't so much because which is what yeah, we've had before. No, because <clears throat> she's got a secret. What she's saying to him is, "Look, I will tell you, but I'm just not going to tell you now." She's teasing him. Yeah, and I'd rather yeah. put it like that. Yeah. In as much as it was, it was in her control, yeah. rather than it being some kind of M- mystical thing. Yeah, I know, I mystical. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was jumbo. like, and it was almost like she's seen the way he is with Clara, and the way Clara teases him with that control about Clara being in control of how they travel, and she said, right, Clara can do it, so can I. Mm. Mm. Okay, I like the the doctor said, I'm a big fan. Back to her. <laughs> that was lovely. Yeah. That was nice. Okay, then, so you know, it's obviously not been answered, and whether it actually ever will be or not is anybody's guess. So do you think she was the Zygon or the human? Well, unless you can do a copy of a copy, I'd say she was the human, because the other one would need to copy the human. Well, Unless she can copy a Zygon being yeah, a human. Yeah. yeah, it's like it's a little bit like a okay, so you've you have the uh Osgood on file. Can I just borrow that file so I can be Osgood as well? Yeah. I mean the okay. way Zygon technology's moved but on. That could that could feed into a story in as much as it's copy of a copy. And therefore yeah, yeah. there's a there's a flaw. Possibly. But. Uh yeah. Maybe. I mean, I, I said it at the time when Missy killed her off, and everybody's like, oh, Osgood's dead. So there's two of them, you know that, right? Mm-hmm. So straight from the and offset. And there's still two of them now. I was, I was just thinking from the offset, you know, you kill the Zygon and keep the human alive, because that, that just makes the possibility of her maybe coming back and going with the Doctor, which we know isn't going to oh, happen now, mm. more likely. And she's human, and yeah. Obviously, Zygons don't just copy humans. They can copy other species. So it's a copying thing. It's not... Yeah. Right, there's a line where the doctor says you're a credit to your species. Mm. So surely he'd only say that line if he thought she was the Zygon one, right? Not necessarily. No. He could be human as well. Obviously, because he's an alien. Right, absolutely. Yeah. So, okay, there's a huge clue, which is that because she says at the end, we need there to be two Osgoods looking after these things, mm. one of those Osgoods has to be a Zygon and the other one has to be human. human. Yeah. So if the new cop is a Zygon... 
then the original must still be the human. No, yeah. a lot of people don't know it's human. But no, because she's looking after it. She needs to know that there's one of each. And don't forget the old inhaler. As far as I remember, or maybe I'm getting it wrong, is that was only for effect. The Zygon was only having the inhaler effect. The Zygon doesn't surely inherit her faults. Yes. So therefore, that's, that's what that's what I get. Yeah, the Osgood we saw right at the beginning of the episode. Everything. You know, she's under a table hiding from the Zygon, going, you know, you wouldn't do that for a fact. There's no one to see it. So that to me is a human under the table, scared, tapping stuff out and breathing with her. So she's the human Osgood. Got to be. Got to be. And that and that reminds me actually of something that. I didn't think worked last week, but that I think this week pulled out of the hat, which is that last week we were told all this stuff about the two Osgoods having this kind of symbiotic relationship, which obviously is an extrapolation from the first Zygon story rather than being something that was already in that Zygon story, but which didn't seem to fit mm. from having just been spoken about. But this week we saw with the two mm. Claras... Yeah. And although what we saw with the two Claras was a different thing, I think that sold the thing with the two Osgoods as well, so that it all therefore felt natural, whereas before it felt a bit clunky. Yeah, and a certain amount of retconning, I know, but it kind of makes sense of the whole Zygon thing anyway. Of course they've got access to the memories. Of course they've got access to the brain patterns in order to be able to <clears throat> mimic the person properly. So, And in some ways that kind of mirrors what happens with the Doctor when he regenerates. Because he's accessing... Because like I say, if every cell dies and is replaced by a new cell, he is actually a new man mm. after a regeneration mm. who is just accessing the memories of the previous man. Mm -hmm. But in this Saigon story, it's actually given you a way in if you want to believe that he's accessing more than just the memories, but sort of emotional triggers and mm. that sort of thing as well. So it kind of, it's kind of opened up a new explanation for how regeneration works as well, mm. which I think is, mm. which is a lot well, of we, we discussed it before, and it's not actually that dissimilar from real life. It's just kind of fast forwarding it. Yeah, yeah, isn't it? Mm. In as much as our, all the cells in our bodies have all died. the well, body the we have in, now is not the body we had when we were and the uh, thing years old. in well, yours might not be the thing in the woman who <laughs> it lived definitely isn't. Yeah. Yeah, at least just got his old body and a new one around it. <laughs> yeah, and he's adding to it. Why am I laughing? Shut your neck. He calls it augmentation. We call it lard. In, in the woman who lived, that whole thing about augmentation. Uh, you know, <clears throat> Sorry, there's only on. so much memory space. You have to eject old memories in order to be able to form new ones. Yeah. Of course, it doesn't work like that. The human brain is not a computer. But by the same token, do you remember the events of? you know, the 35th day of your sixth year, as well as you do the events of today. No, because that's the way memory works anyway. You mm. forget things mm. and you have clearer memories of more recent things. Mm. Which was dealt <laughs> with brilliantly a few episodes back. Yeah, and again, with the Doctor and regeneration, it's like each new Doctor comes along, he has new talents, but he's lost some of his old ones. And that feels like the same thing. Mm. It's not that the new body says, in order to have the new talents, I have to get rid of the old ones, is that when you're born into a new body and you're a new man, you will have new ones, and some of the old ones will be gone. But it's, but the explanation f here that you can extrapolate into regeneration is kind of saying, 
that it's not necessarily that those old ones have been left behind in the old body, yeah. but that the new body can't access them. Mm. So they're perhaps still latent, and these new talents that this new doctor's got for playing the guitar or whatever have perhaps always been latent. And Patrick Tratton played the recorder, so you know there's always yeah, been music. I, I just doctor. think this super intelligence that he's able to pick these things up. But yeah, you could suggest that they are mm. talents. You know, we will take certain things. Something that's latent that yeah. comes out yeah. of the new personality. And I want to just say about the guitar again. I mean, as much as I love guitar and rock and all that sort of thing, I, I do understand that not a lot of people are taken to the idea that the doctor's playing electric guitar and it's a bit like a rocker or whatever. But I don't think that's what we're seeing here. We're, we're seeing a really lovely meditative state that he goes into when he's playing it, just like Pat used to do when he had his recorder. He had a little, he had to mm -hmm. concentrate, so he'd play a, a mm -hmm. little annoying mm -hmm. tune. And that was just that wonderful moment, wasn't it? At the beginning of, I think, the last episode, wasn't it? Where he comes out and he's just playing yeah, yeah. one or two strokes of the guitar. I oh, know, it's Amazing Grace he's playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I like it, strangely, I like it to the, um, the, the, the McCoy bit with the TV movie. Yes. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Um, one of the little thing I'd kind of like to bring up before we go into giving it scores is. Furble. <laughs> well, it's not That's like the, the Zygons weren't coming up with enough <laughs> furbles. No, the scene with the policemen uh, rather ostentatiously reminded me of Terror of the, the awesome. Autons. Yeah. But. Deeper than that, the whole episode reminded me a bit of the Auton stories mm. in some of the scenarios and stuff. Mm. I know it's, and this was very much more even than the first episode based around invasion of the body snatchers and that people paranoia totally. thing at the start. Yeah. It's a shame they didn't do rather more of that. The, the, the scene that nailed it for me, that really rammed it home, because obviously this is invasion of the body snatchers and a different kind of guys. But it was the little bit in the um, in the, the shopping centre. The shopping centre, yeah. yeah, thank you. Yeah, so she's walking around. She's looking at the kids sitting there watching this bloke, and they're not reacting. It's just like it was simple. They didn't have to say anything, do anything threatening. They just had to stand there and look. And it was the same with the coppers. Uh, John Davy, our friend John Davy, was in that, and he was um, he was just brilliant because you know the guy doesn't talk. He's an extra, and he's done a load of stuff. He just has, has to look mean and solid <laughs> it was just brilliant the whole th the whole scene with the doctor talking to them and then I slowly realising and going oh actually no they're probably Zygons aren't they I'll, bet I'll best move away yeah. and it was so yeah. silent it was so well done there was no you had coppers on each end plus the, the car was turning around and he was still talking really interesting direction you could have had a lot of threat there you could have had a lot of menace but it was played almost like realism this is what would really happen. It felt really, Strange. very much like a gateway episode. If you wanted to sort of say, oh, did you enjoy that, that Zygon episode? Right. Well, if you like that, then you'll like this back in the classic series. And and you could yes. go back. And you could go back. Easily to, now. To well, it felt more like the Invasion of the Body Snatchers film. But yeah, mm. the, the Auton stories functioned in many of the same ways. Yeah. 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 Also... No Scarrison, though. <clears throat> That's disappointing. This episode... If you'd have taken the first episode... And had that as the first episode of an entire series. And this episode was the last episode of an entire series. Yeah. You could easily have built an entire series that could about have been the Zygons. A, event TV right there. Five yeah. days, five nights. Well, not even Arrow five nights. Pops. A whole 10, 12, 26 yeah, right. episode yeah. series. Yeah. Same sort about, of feel as Children of Earth. But this is what Doctor Who does. It, no, no, it, no, no, no. Not even Children of Earth. You could make... Make a whole twenty-four episode oh, series yeah, out yeah, yeah. of yeah. Yeah. each week a different does. set of Zygons mm. who might be mm. about mm. to 
And there's sort of you'd have shady men in black, you know and you don't know whether they're Zygon or human, whether yeah. they're trying to protect yeah. the detente or whether they're trying to break it. Yeah. Jay, you know what you're doing right now, don't you? You're copywriting that idea. Well, no, I can't <laughs> because it's there. No, They've well, done yeah. it in two weeks when oh, they could no, have done it in you could, you fifteen could, or something. They're still there. They're still on Earth. You can move into that realm. Start writing it now. Well, there are other series that already do this, and <laughs> yeah, there have been ever since Invasion yeah. of the Body Snatchers. But it's just it just felt like this week. Those first 15, 20 minutes of this episode mm. felt like 15 or 20 minutes out of a series that runs for 24 weeks. And that's what it does so well, Doctor Who, doesn't it? It takes an amazing concept, crams it into 45 minutes or 90 minutes, and it moves on to the next idea. Yeah. And you're thinking, do you know what, even the ghost story that we had that a few weeks back, that could have easily been stretched over three or four hours, easily. Mm. That, that's a, a story that could just run and run and run if you wanted it to. Yeah, that, oh my god, I love this series so much. Okay, so we score it then, or have we already? Pretty much. Can I score last week's? Yeah, yeah, I was oh, just yeah. going to say, you've not scored last week, so oh. do you want to give them separate scores then? Yeah, I, I, I apologise to Simon, I, I, I ranted to him about how bad I thought last week's episode was. Really? Yeah, really, and I was going, oh, seven if you're lucky, I was really quite cross about it. Um, it's because I was watching it whilst other people were in the room. I had two ladies in a room pretty much talking loud. Me and Finn were trying to watch it on subtitles. It just didn't go in. So to me, it felt shallow and quite light. And, and, and you know, this, there were serious subjects, the ISIS thing, all very, very serious subjects, which I thought were you know, not very well done. There was a bit of HBO in there. There's a little bit of Walking Dead. You know, there's efforts to try and emulate other episodes of, of TV. Um, and it just didn't. I just thought, oh. and I went on to Facebook to Simon. And I said, "What? What? What was this about?" And he came back. Well, you missed this bit. And you missed that bit. And I went, "Oh, did I?" Right. So we, I instantly. Well, you miss bits by talking over them anyway. <laughs> as I've discovered, trying to watch these episodes no, with I'm you two in the room. Oh, I think we're quite good. Um, so I watched it there and then again with Finn. We sat and watched it again straight away after talking to you, Simon. Um, and I came back to you immediately. I was went, oh my god, that was great. That was really good. It's not the best episode ever. There are weak moments in it, mm. um, the church steps, for instance. But generally, I thought, oh, this is great. And let's see what happens next week. And I'm sure it'll get better and better. But um, yeah, so I did up it a bit. I gave it an eight out of ten last week. And now for this week, ten out of ten. Simon, um, there are stories. I always go back. I always go about my dad. And I always remember uh, having the sort of relationship we were in, with him where I would just sort of like, a bit like a cat going out and, 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 and catching an animal and bringing it back to show, look, look what I've got, look what I've got. And I would, <laughs> my dad would never really into Doctor Who. He never really got it and always thought it was a bit silly and, and just never kind of saw the heart in it. And I think if there was a story that I would show to him and say, look, this is what it's doing now. It's not the same as it, it's the same as it always was. But it's doing this now, and it's relevant now, and it's this clever. And I would sit him down, and I would show him that episode and say, look at that. That is the dog's bollocks. <laughs> that is absolutely brilliant. So, so it's, it's, it's like got to be a six or a seven? Yeah, two, something like that. Two, maybe a two. <laughs> no, it's got to be a, well, it's got to be a ten. It's got to be, despite wow. minor, minor, minor flaws. I've got one minor niggle, and it's five rounds rapid, that's it. I've yeah. got nothing else to say about the episode no. of Storogatory. No. I... I will say that the episode, because that scene, that important scene, went on for so long, 
I have maybe quibbles with the pacing of the episode mm. because self-indulgent. Do you think it didn't feel like a natural flow? Okay, it felt like a get to this room and then do the thing. Yeah, so well, it was all building up to that. It was all building up to set that piece. Yeah, it was building up to that set piece, but. Because of that quibble with the pacing, I think I'm going to give it a nine again. Like but last how week. much did you enjoy it from oh. the inside of your body, from the inside of your heart? Did it make you tingle in your bottom? How good? <laughs> how good was that episode? No, it didn't. It, no, no, it was great, and I loved it, and I appreciated it, but it didn't make me tingle in the way that you were talking about <laughs> at the start. No. Okay, so almost a perfect. I time. really hope people don't kind of pick up on the Clara thing. There's so many people saying, "Oh, Clara irritates me. Why do they always have to make the companion so important to the Doctor?" Well, basically because whoever it is he's travelling with is basically his friend now, isn't it? Above and everyone else. Well, he wouldn't I hope take they don't them that if they weren't that important. They no, have, no. Um, they have to be important. I just think this was so good. I'll be really disappointed if people don't get from it what I got from it. And and if not, then it's a shame. It's great. I don't really think good. we've given many tens out, have we, Simon? I think Dinosaur's got one, maybe. Well, tens? Yeah, I, I did about three last about series. Three, no. Yeah, I have to say, I preferred you gave Series 8 Caretaker to this one. ten last year. Both of you did. I bloody love The Caretaker. I've yeah, watched I, that forever. I have to say, I preferred Series 8 to this one. If I'm honest. Yeah, yeah, I prefer Series 8 to this one. I prefer the characterisation of the Doctor in this one, but I think the stories were stronger last year. Mm. Mm. Blimey. Yeah, we were all given nines and stuff. High schools this season. Yeah, I've given sevens Sevens and sixes. No, you've given given a lot of nines out of this series, haven't you? No. For what? Don't think J.R. has. Well, this one, last one. This one, the last one, and the very first one. Everything else has been six, seven, or eight. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah. Hmm. I've been eleven and out of eight, I think. Yeah. If I went nine, eight, seven, six. Oh no, I gave a nine to. Um... The Viking one. Yeah, because I loved that. But then an eight for the one after. True. Yeah. I haven't given a single ten this year. No. Good. The high school so. Yeah, well, Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who just ticks my boxes in the right way. Even when uh, I don't think it's quite up to full power. And like Mm. I say, I think the Clara thing is possibly one of the factors in that it's not up to as same speed as last year was, because last year I think it hit all those things. Yeah, this is the thing we were mentioning earlier about the glory years of the Doctor and Clara. I kind of hoped it was going to be... Um, I remember I would go about my bloody Pet Shop Boys. Remember one of the nicest reviews of a Pet Shop Boys record was, it was basically they were doing what they were best at. It was nothing new, but it was. And, and somebody said sometimes there's there's nothing nicer than the sound of treading water. Mm. And I and I kind of wanted it to be like that with the Doctor and Clara, kind of like mm. skimming stones, skimming along the surface, just getting on with their adventures, adventure after adventure. And it's nice like that sometimes. But some of the foreshadowing for what's happening is. Yeah. A little bit clunky. Like when she comes out of the TARDIS at the start of the Toby Whithouse one and she does this speech about, come on, Doctor, let's have an adventure. Yeah. And it just felt, no, you're trying a bit too hard there. It'd be nice if there was a period of time when the, the universe wasn't about to end, the Doctor wasn't looking forward to his death, um, and there mm, wasn't yes. something something overshadowing. Yeah. But anyway. Anyway, you miserable buggers. <laughs> But it's still bloody great, so yeah. Moving on to something else that this story has 
highlighted for me in a big way the subject of who takes over from Stephen Moffat when he eventually goes, because it looks like he's nailed in for the next series at least. Mm. But, I mean, people are always throwing about names of contenders. And to me, the one thing that unites Russell T. Davis and Stephen Moffat is that they both had a vision for what they were doing with Doctor Who. Mm. And when I say a vision for what they were doing, I don't just mean, oh, well, let's do a story about this. Let's do a series about that. But I mean a vision mm. for how their entire tenure would feel consistent. And this episode felt, this adventure felt like it. Well, no, what I'm no, not quite in that way. Where I'm going with this is slightly different. Oh, really? What I mean is, if you look at somebody like some of the other names that we throw in, right? Chris Chibnall, he's successful enough that the BBC could offer it to him now. Mm. But you look at Chris Chibnall's episodes and. By and large, Chris Chibnall's episodes have always been, right, that's what the showrunner wants, that's what I'll give him. Yeah. 42 is very much a, okay, here's Russell T. Davis' story beats. Mm. And Dinosaurs on a Spaceship, as amazing as it was, was like, okay, let's throw in these kinds of story beats. I've not had the impression across his episodes that you're getting Chris Chibnall's story beats. There's not consistency of... Vision. Taste, yeah. and Theme, ideology. Mm, mm. Mark Gatiss. Brilliant at doing pastiche. Not so brilliant at doing other things. If he was a showrunner, it wouldn't matter if he wasn't brilliant at doing other things because he would be doing pastiche. But by that token, you've got to think that the BBC would look at him and say, OK, what's his Doctor Who going to be about? Mm. Pastiching the past isn't enough. So Mark Gatiss, by that criteria... That's another no. Toby Whithouse, he's a great writer, but he basically tells the same story every time. He always, not always, but generally his thing, if he has an ideology, his thing will be that the villain will be a mirror of the Doctor in some way. Town Called Mercy, you had the the Doctor who augmented the soldiers. Mm. Wasn't intended for evil purposes, turned out to be an evil thing. School reunion, you had the Krillitanes and Anthony Head playing the guy in charge of the Krillitanes. Mm. It wasn't supposed to be evil purposes, but that's how it turned out. And, of course, you always get a head-to-head between the Doctor and the villain. in these. That's mm. Toby Whithouse's thing, but that's not going to carry a series. Or if it does carry a series, it's going to become very samey very quickly. So then you think Toby Whithouse, having done Being Human, that could have been another name in the frame, but again, it doesn't feel so. Peter Harness, on the other hand, people didn't like his dodgy science in Kill the Moon. And there's a bit of dodgy science again, in, particularly in last week's episode of the Saigon one. Dodgy science is irrelevant. It's whether you've got something to say. It's whether you're going to bring an ideology to the programme. And in both of his stories, he has proven beyond any shadow of doubt, OK, it's a bit more overt in this Saigon story, but he has an ideology that he's bringing to the series. Yeah, he's. You're looking for a world builder, aren't you? In yes. some, yeah, and in some ways, he is Barry Letts and Terence Dix for the 21st century. Mm-hmm. He's the guy who's going to say, "Right, my Doctor Who is going to reflect the concerns of the world around." What's it. Peter Harness's mileage before Doctor Who? What's his history? Um, well, the thing he's perhaps the best known for is Wallander. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This, these two episodes, uh, either 
either Stephen Moffat or Russell T Davis could have written this, you know, how, how, this kind of weighty. But the emphasis answer. would have been very different. The emphasis mm. would have been different. It seemed to be a combination of both Moffat's world, obviously it is, and a bit of Rusty Davis. I mean, that's why I got the, the, the chill down my spine, because it felt like modern Doctor Who encapsulated in two episodes really, really well by this writer, Peter Harness. He's obviously understood, he, he knows Doctor Who, he <clears> understands <throat> what Stephen's after, he's seen what's gone before, he's incorporated there the Doctor, um, he's used this fantastic... Um, concept to bring in a very relevant plot and, and story idea and uh, you know ISIS and terrorism what have you and uh, and immigrants and things like that and it's like you say he's a world builder to me what he's if done he, he already is writing like a showrunner in these just these two episodes he's written something me, that's, that's what it feels like he's written something that's very clever but most importantly he's worn it lightly yeah it felt a bit like they were hammering you over the head in the first episode, yeah. but not so much that there wasn't still room for the characters in there. No. To a lesser degree than normal, mm. but as this episode is proven, less so last week, more so this week, and across the whole story, fine. So here's a guy who could, insofar as I can see, Actually, be a serious contender. Could be. Him. And we're talking about and the and writing as well. He's got the ability to play the audience mm. to an extent, which you want, to, you want to do without them realizing they're being played. Yeah. You know? And we are talking about the writing as well here, because he's a writer. The directing is a different thing. So I thought there was some weak direction last week, which let what he was. You, you can see what was going on. The church steps is an obvious thing. When you see it on paper, or you read it, or if it's a graphic novel, that would have made a great scene. Absolutely perfect scene as a graphic novel, um, The Preacher or something like that. But then you go try to film it on a BBC budget and pretending to be American, all this sort of thing, and it's it's not quite. It doesn't well, quite come across. So yeah, but no, we right. said exactly the same thing last week. Yeah, probably looked great on paper. It didn't quite work. Okay. In physical location. Okay, we've got a bit of audio feedback. All right. How's that going to work? You're just going to feed that in. Yeah. So, uh, okay, it's going to start now. Hello, dudes. It's been a while since I sent you guys an email. I hope you are well and healthy. Good, good. Family okay? Nice. That's the small talk out of the way. Still loving the podcast. Need more Mark and Lee, though. That's the constructive criticism done. Now on with the review. This could be the first proper two-parter of this year, as the others have been padded to fill the required length or add two separate stories bundled together to make one. A lot happened in this episode that will hopefully pay off in the conclusion. First off, really enjoyed the Zygons, voiced by Nicholas Briggs, who's been wondering why his name has been left off the end credits via his Twitter account. Most of the time they were used in dark, gloomy rooms which brought out their scariness, and not like in Day of the Doctor where they were in bright sunlight on top of a hill. The real world radicalisation and the refugee crisis were brought to the Doctor Who world via the treatment of the Zygons, something classic Who used to do a bit, rather than mutants, British colonialism, and the monster of Peladon, the miners' strikes, both Pertwee stories, sorry Mark. Human Osgood, I think it was the Zygon Osgood that was killed by Missy, seems to be a slightly different character from previous episodes. Here she seems worn down and tired. The loss of her sister has just killed all her spirit. 
have a feeling that Peter Arnes will make her out to be some sort of saviour where she sacrifices herself to save the peaceful Zygons, even though she is a human. Kate seems resourceful and more like herself instead of the completely different woman that was in The Magician's Apprentice. In that episode, she was played as if she was a buffoon letting Clara take over. This woman had got to be the head of an international scientific military organisation by being extremely intelligent and not like a wet lettuce who couldn't see various threats unless pointed out to her by a school teacher. Again, I think this might be Zygon Kate that wants to truth or consequence. What a name for a town. The reason being, there were two Osgoods and two Kates at the conclusion of the Day of the Doctor and nobody has mentioned this other Kate since. Clara being revealed as a Zygon all along was fantastic as I thought it was Jack, played by one-third of Bugs J. Griffiths. With a story about doppelganger aliens, somebody had to be a double agent and I assumed it was her. Jenna Kelman playing evil Clara stroke Bonnie shows that this show will miss her when she leaves. And Peter Capaldi was great too, as he wasn't required to be in every scene. I think with his portrayal of the Twelfth Doctor, less is more. Here, as the story was stretched over three continents, it needed three different storylines to keep the momentum going. Rebecca Front, as the gun-toting military leader, was a bit strange, as I've only seen her in comedic roles, and seeing this little lady in full military gear carrying a machine gun was one of the more funnier things in this episode. I just thought it reminds me of Beryl Reed in Earthshock. Other things I wondered about... Question mark underwear. Are they trying to create marketing opportunities in any way they can? First off, sunglasses. And now Marks and Spencers will probably have a full page devoted to Doctor Who underwear. Male stroke female stroke alien. The naval officer who created the technology stroke serum stroke weapon that can rip Zygons apart. Would that have been Harry Sullivan? Secret bases under schools. Is this where Class, the spin-off show, will be set? Is Human Osgood lying about not needing the original human alive to keep their Zygon form from appearing? Let's hope that the second episode will be just as good as the first one. Your most loyal listener, Sucky Kark. Well, thanks, Sucky, for that audio feedback. That was brilliant. Nobody's <laughs> ever sent us audio feedback in before. No, that, you should do more, more of that, a lot more, yeah. Make it, make it about three pages long as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lee, I made you watch the Next Time trailer this week, which yeah, you don't normally bastard. do. <laughs> yeah, but what did you think? Um, it felt like the Ghost episode, actually. It felt like we were going back to... Um, uh, a spaceship with not many actors on because they're cutting down on the costs. No, okay, it, it felt quite good actually. I was, I was looking forward to it. I didn't see what the creatures were. It's got Reese Smith in it. I like him. So yeah, great. Did this episode supposed to be unlike any other? This is found footage. Oh, is it? That's why I wanted you to Ooh. see it. You didn't notice though. I didn't notice it. No, not in the trailer. No, oh, it's oh, a cool. found footage episode. Yeah, about time we didn't it. Why not? Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. That's yeah. great. I like found footage films, as you do, I feel. I should probably have told you that before we watched the next <laughs> yeah. time trailer. Yeah. <clears throat> I thought it'd that, be more obvious. That does explain a lot about the camera work. And I was thinking, what's, what's the one Yeah, about? why is the doctor oh. looking straight into the camera when yeah, he's talking yeah, to yeah. somebody? Was there much Clara there? Wasn't was there? No. Again? I thought there was. I didn't was notice. There? Oh, I didn't see. Mm. I hope it's all told like that. Found footage, yeah. Yeah, the whole episode is supposed to oh, be. great. Yeah. Right, so I suppose we'll be back next week to talk about that, but 
In the meantime, I was JR. I was Lee. And I was Simon. And we'll speak again soon. Mm-hmm.